This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, Cultivating Place's Women's History Month interviews gets to the very basics of horticultural work with soil. The soil world is integral, foundational to the plant world. Since the 1980s, mainstream academic soil science has been transformed into a search for biological discovery. It is a fundamental shift from a science that seemed blinded by the theories of the Green Revolution from the 1920s through the 1970s. The term Green Revolution refers to innovations intended to increase food supply around the world, specifically through introductions of new, often dwarfed, sometimes genetically modified, varieties of cereal and grain crops developed for high yield, along with introductions of synthetic fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides often derived from the chemical byproducts of World War II. The Green Revolution asserted increased production of and reduced pest and disease damage to crops managed by these man-made inputs over traditional agricultural methods. Beginning in the late 1970s, however, more voices started questioning the long-term results and benefits versus serious disadvantages of these methods. Many of the voices raised in opposition were women's voices. Among them was Dr. Elaine Ingham. Elaine's work in microbiology at the Colorado State University Fort Collins in the 1970s through the 1980s began illuminating the incredibly complex living systems at work in healthy soil. Her work is strongly associated with the concept of a soil food web, and in the beginning of this century, she is the founder of Soil Food Web, Inc., and she's here to share more about her work. Welcome, Elaine. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. So you have had a really long and interesting career in which you have accomplished and articulated some really interesting and seminal things for our field of interest, uh, plant life here, and how it relates to so much else. Can you describe for listeners, what does your work consist of right now, um, especially as it relates to soil and plant life, Elaine? Well, right now, we're, I'm still continuing to work on what is the soil food web? How is it different in different parts of the planet, given climate and season, changing weather patterns, things like that? How do these organisms interact with each other to help plants grow? Or what are the conditions that um, results in the disease-causing or not beneficial organisms winning out over the beneficials? All those stages of succession and so many people doesn't, don't understand that it's the biology that pushes succession along. That's what's really altering things so that the next stage of plant life will succeed into that system. And then, of course, those new plants coming in alter the biology in the soil, which sets the stage for the next stage of succession. So lots of information yet to go and mm-hmm. um, only really begun to scratch the surface yeah. of the soil. 
the more questions we answer, the more questions come up, I think is um, is so often the case. So before we get into the technicalities of this big, interesting, wide world that you are studying, take us back a little bit and and set the scene for us of, of where you grew up and the kind of journey of your work of the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom this would be your life's focus, Elaine? Um, I grew up in Minnesota, so the frigid Northlands, and I thought every place in the world had uh, 25 feet of snow in the wintertime. That was just how everybody else lived. It was (laughs) kind of a shock when I learned it was different than that. So my father was a veterinarian um, at the University of Minnesota, and he would take me into his laboratory. He took me because I was the only one of his offspring who was interested in laboratory work. And I remember at the age of six years old, my father sat me down at a microscope. He wasn't quite sure what to do with me. (laughs) And I couldn't be running around the halls getting into trouble. So, you know, what is he going to do? Plops me down in front of a microscope and says, count the E. coli. And so he showed me how to make the microscope slides and start counting. And he wanted me to do 25 fields, and he figured that it would take me a long time to get 25 <laughs> fields if E. coli um, counted, and he was right. <laughs> so um, my first introduction to the microscope, my father and I worked on all my science projects through the course of you know middle school and high school, and I went off to college at St. Olaf mm-hmm. College in Northfield, Minnesota, a very Scandinavian, Norwegian school, one of the top pre-med schools in the United States. Mm -hmm. But I decided I did not want to go to medical school. I had met some of the people. I worked as a, um, in the heart hospital as a lab um, dishwasher during my senior year and uh, discovered I really didn't like those people. They were too focused on the wrong things. Um, I want to understand how the world works, not how you get the patient to spend the most money on the most expensive drugs and, you know, all of that uh, medical. Um, It was just an anthem to me. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go to graduate school, went to Texas A&M, where I worked in marine microbiology Mm. on the digestive organisms in the digestive systems of oysters and freshwater mussels and started to understand that you know, science purports, you know, in many ways, the academic world purports that it knows everything. We found all the answers. And so just ask me, I can answer all of your questions and began to discover that that is absolutely not the case. Uh, there's so much we don't know that it's overwhelming. And the methodologies that people often use to try to Uh, collect the data and then the misinterpretations that they perform in explaining the world. If if you take the material inside the digestive system of an oyster and plate it out on a Petri dish, you're only going to find two or three species because we are so changing the the habitat. Now think about the inside of an oyster versus, you know, a medium in a plastic Petri dish that you've spread a a 0.1 mil of the oyster's digestive system in and uh, how many microorganisms. Well, I look through the microscope 
at those organisms. And I noted that there were literally a hundred different species of bacteria that I could see. I couldn't identify them to genus and species, but I could see there were a hundred different things mm. that were totally different in morphology, doing very different things. And so I figured I should be seeing that many little colonies coming up on my Petri dishes, and I was seeing one or two. And so how can you use that method? Petri plate methods do not allow you to get even an inkling of what the diversity is out there in the real world. And yet that was the standard of microbiology. That's what you had to do to start assessing the organisms in, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you want to. Right. So there'd been a lot of work done on the ecology of different ecosystems that were just completely inappropriate when it comes to understanding any of these microorganisms. So from there, I went to um, Colorado State University. I married my husband when uh, we were at Texas A&M. He was doing his master's degree at the same time I was. So when we finished up, we agreed to go to the place where both of us got research assistantships. So it was kind of, okay, where are we going to go? One place accepted both of us, Colorado State University. So I started working in soil. And that's what my major professor, Dr. Donald Klein, wanted me to work on. How do you determine the active fungal biomass in soil? Soil has this really unpleasant little habit of having sand, silk, clay, rocks, pebbles, and organic matter in it. How are you going to see your microorganisms on a background of that? And so I had to work out this methodology to be able to look at bacteria and fungi, protozoa, and nematodes all in the same sample so we could assess everything at the same time without anybody growing and increasing or getting eaten <laughs> by the predators that you have in the system. You can't leave the test tube on the um, lab countertop for more than a couple, you know, maybe 20 minutes, half hour, an hour, no more. Or those protozoa have uh, been eating my bacteria to the tune of 10,000. <laughs> you know, so you have to hold your samples in the right kinds of conditions that mimic where you took your samples from. So the time we had um, samples brought in from the Antarctic, uh, we had to keep them at like minus 35 degrees all the time that they were traveling, which can be a joy when you think about how far away the Antarctic is. Yeah. And so you think transporting samples are going to be simple and easy until you start dealing with some of these extreme environments that you want to mimic. Right. How do you mimic a thermal hot pool in Yellowstone? How do you get it to Colorado State University without it cooling down too much? So now what are you looking at? Right. You're, you're not assessing the real system. So from um, Colorado State University, I postdoc at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab for about um, four years, five years, uh, working on questions of what is actually the role and function of bacteria in the soil. When I had started my work at Colorado State University, my major professor, Don Klein, had sent me out to talk to soils people in horticulture or in agronomy or in crop science or in soil science or 
you know, hydroponics, um, any of the different departments that had anything to do with growing plants. And I was to ask them, um, what is the importance of these microorganisms in the soil? We've got bacteria, we've got fungi, we've got protes and nematodes. We've, we have all these creatures in the soil. What do they do? How do they help your plant? Do they help your plant? And to a person, the, re the reply was, they don't really do much. They're just there. Don't worry about them. You should not spend your PhD on trying to understand what fungi do in soil because they're just there. They don't really do anything for your plant. Probably the only function they really understood was that fungi were disease-causing organisms. Oh, fungi right. cause disease. And uh, surprise, the disease causes are less than 1% of the fungal hyphae that are actually in soil. And we have such a bad misunderstanding of soil and what the biology does. You always see the little pie charts of how much biology is present in a soil and it's like five, a little 5% sliver of the pie, hmm. go to an old growth forest. Go to the most um, rapidly growing, the most productive ecosystem that we know of on this planet. Dig into the soil and you have problems digging into the soil because the fungi are holding that soil in place so tightly, so perfectly for the old growth trees that you can't pull that soil out it's held in place by the huge amount of fungal hyphae that are in that soil and so when you pull the fungal hyphae out and you measure fungal weight versus uh, what was what's left of the soil you realize that 75 percent of the weight of that soil is fungal biomass hmm. and so huge difference between what huge. we think of in agriculture versus out there in the real world. Yeah. And just the relating of this part of your story gives us a sense of just how much we don't know. Like you become aware of this just enormous horizon of, of unknown. And the minute you know it's unknown, it opens you and and then you, from, from you, us, up to what could it be and why are these methodologies not appropriate and why even is language along the lines of beneficial, non-beneficial, how are they restricting the way we see and therefore learn? What year, uh, give us a little context in terms of years, when you were doing your PhD work and speaking to agronomists and soil scientists at that time, what years would, would those have been? And, and maybe remind listeners of some of the mindset that was in place at the time that would have led them to that answer. Yeah, the time I started my PhD work at Colorado State University was 1977, mm -hmm. and I finished in 1981. And the context of why go out to all these other departments and find out what they knew about these microorganisms in the soil and the shock that they thought those organisms were just in the soil for the fun of it, mm -hmm. I guess. You know, why would Mother Nature keep them around? If you don't serve a purpose... Mother Nature is punt kicking you out of the door. So obviously these organisms were doing something. And then isn't it interesting that it was still in the context of benefit to human beings? We only need to know about those things that are growing our plants better and 
that's where we get the funding from. That's where the dollars came from to try to start doing this work. When I worked at the Natural Resource Ecology Lab at Colorado State University for my postdoc, it was the same thing. We were trying to understand nutrient cycling in soil. And we were just the barest inkling from my husband's PhD work that it is the bacteria and fungi pulling nutrients out of the sand, the silt, the clay, rocks, and pebbles out of the organic matter, storing all those nutrients in the bacteria and fungal biomass, which is not available to the plant. And of course, what's in the rocks and organic matter is not available to your plant. How do you convert that into something that is available and that your plant can take up? Well, that's where the predators come in. You have to have the protozoa and the nematodes and the microarthropods to eat the bacteria and fungi and release those nutrients in a plant-available form that your plant can take easily take up. Your plant shouldn't have to put up to force a diffusion gradient to pull nutrients into the root system because your plant's going to die waiting for those nutrients to diffuse from six inches away into the root system of the plant, especially in agricultural soils where we have no structure. Mm-hmm. We start to understand all the little side plots that are going on by having your root completely enveloped by a beneficial set of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematode. No disease-causing organisms can even find your root. You will not have diseases and pests attacking your root systems. Well, how about above ground? Well, same thing. You have to have everything covered by these beneficial organisms. They are very indigenous they grow in the climate. You must understand when your rainfall is going to come and when is it going to get hot and when is it going to get really mm-hmm. cold. And that selects for this massive diversity of microorganisms. You have to have a massive diversity because we don't know what the summer is going to be like. We don't know what the growing conditions are going to be. Is it going to be hot? Is it going to be cold, wet, dry? Maybe part of the season is going to be wet and dry. And the other side is just all these possible combinations and you must have all the species of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, et cetera, that will be able to function under all of those conditions. You mess up and you destroy a huge proportion. Good luck trying to grow your plants. And then human beings, we've got to get those organisms that are on the surfaces of the plants. We've got to eat them to realign um, the, uh, the biome inside of our bodies. We must have those organisms coating the surfaces of our digestive system or we can't take up nutrients. It's just like your root system. Right. The bacteria and fungi had to be eaten by the protozoa and nematodes and think about all the things. We think of our guts as being kind of dull, boring places. Oh no, 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 no. It's jumping down there. It's really cooking if you're a healthy person. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dr. Elaine Ingham is a soil scientist, microbiologist, ecologist, and founder of Soil Food Web, Inc., based in Corvallis, Oregon. We'll be back for more after a break. Stay with us. Oh, mercy. Hello to you all, wherever you might be listening from. Your desk, your living room, your garden, a drive, or a walk. What a crazy, crazy week and time. How are you? I hope you're all holding up in your own ways, holding each other up in as many ways as you can and are able. 
I'm thinking here of my conversation a few weeks back with Amy Merrick and her description of the supportive crowd of life that is a wildflower meadow and how they hold one another up. Think and breathe as supportively as we can. I think this is a very good mantra right now. When I recorded my notes to you last week, I was still in the midst of my March book tour and meeting so many warm, wonderful, interesting gardening folk at the Ecological Landscape Alliance annual conference at the University of Amherst in Massachusetts, at Long Hill House and Garden under the care of the trustees of the reservation in Beverly, Massachusetts, and at Harvard University's Arnold Arboretum. Finally, at Blythewold House and Garden in Bristol, Mass. All of my speaking dates from March 10th through to the end of April, more or less, have been canceled and postponed to a later date, which I believe is the safe and respectful way to go forward. I can't imagine how many things have been canceled or postponed or transformed in your lives as well. I want to say right now that to have met the hundreds of you that I did meet was such sublime joy and affirmation. The conversations, the sense of connection, and the sense of affirming empowerment from being in community with other like-minded gardener and plant-loving people was a ballast for the storm that is now upon us. There were those of you who hugged me, who cried when describing the meaning of these conversations on cultivating place to you and your sense of yourself and your life. It is no exaggeration to say that I cried more than once myself. I love what I do. Speaking to people of such scope and range and thought and amplifying their voices, your voices, and work out into our growing world. But as I joke when I speak to groups in person, I mostly conduct my conversations on my own, sitting in a recording studio with Matt on the other side of the glass from me, running the board for the recording. I rarely meet you all in person, so to look out at a sea of faces and feel the connection in person is something different altogether. I am so sorry not to get to meet so many more of you and have these interesting conversations in person over the next six to eight weeks. But you will keep hearing from me every week as usual, in your ear, in your days. So there's that. I would love to hear from you at any time. Please reach out on Instagram or Facebook and just check in. Let me know how you're doing. Because while so much has been canceled, I think it's fair to say we can also redirect our view and our perspective and our focus to all that has not been canceled. Spring, for instance, has not been canceled. The red-winged blackbird and the pussy willows in the hedgerow here where I am, kind of stuck in the northeast, reminded me of that just this morning. Kindness and care, compassion and humanity, 
These have not been canceled in any way, no matter the prescribed four to six feet of social distancing suggested. The trees leafing out and our ability to center ourselves in the fresh air of each moment and remember what is valuable to us and to those we love, including the trees, the bees waking to the season, the sharing of a flower or an herbal bundle for healing, these have not been canceled. Now, back to our conversation with soil scientist Elaine Ingham. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now for more with Dr. Elaine Ingham about the technicalities of her soil science work and her ongoing research. Just listening to you talk about the different microorganisms that are in different environments. And, you know, I think about being a beginner gardener here in interior northern California, Elaine, and not understanding that if I watered my sad plant in the middle of the summer, I actually made it worse rather than better because I triggered microorganisms that that were going to take advantage of that environment to the deficit of microorganisms that were adapted to dry, hot summers. But I didn't know that because I came from a different environment, came here, watered my plant, triggered fungal activity that they weren't adapted to, killed my plant. And I remember when I first was interviewing you for the book and you described the relationship, which you were just touching on, between the microorganisms in the soil, the microorganisms above soil on the plant in the example of a pear, and how much activity is going on on the surface of that pear that allows us in our guts to be able to process it in a healthy manner. And that whole cycle was just like magic to me. Yeah. And then, and then you add our animals into this mix and all the nutrient cycling that's going on that they're involved in. And most people don't think of the hair coming off the horse or the pig. And that's just chock full of microorganisms. Good guys should be. If you've got healthy animals, well, where do the animals get their microorganisms from? Mm -hmm. If they eat grass, they've, we need to make certain that all these beneficial organisms are present and functioning on what they're going to eat. So yeah. now we can get eggs and butter and cheese and steaks from our animals that have all the right sets of microorganisms on there. It's like we think we're, you know, this food should be sterile, right? Oh, horrors that it should have any bacteria or fungi or protozoa or nematodes on it. That's, that's just terrible. No, that's what you must have. Yeah. Let's make sh- sure it's the good guys, not the bad guys. Okay, so we've jumped way forward, which is great, and I love it. But so, so step back a little bit in case um, we've lost anybody, including me. So you're you're there in Colorado. You are asking these questions. You are hearing an answer that doesn't make any sense to you. We are in the context of sort of post Green Revolution days, post World War II. There is this belief that the soil is inert; that you have to douse it with NPK in order to get plants to grow to the desired standard of agriculture at the time, and things are going from bad to worse in terms of agricultural production and health and 
and you start to articulate this idea of a soil food web. Now, sitting here in 2020, the idea of the soil food web is fairly fairly common to most people who pay attention to this kind of, of work and field. But it was very new at the time in its articulation. It's ancient in its derivation, but fairly brand new in its articulation in this setting. Describe for people exactly what you mean when you say the soil food web. You've already been talking about it, but articulate it in a sort of linear fashion. So it's typically photosynthesis going way back to the very beginning. Yeah. Sunlight energy is stored in carbon-carbon bonds through the process of photosynthesis. The carbon comes from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which, of course, releases then the oxygen. Go away. That's a waste product. Plants don't need that. We do. we got to breathe. But plants don't need oxygen, really, um, as a nutrient. So carbon-carbon bonds, sunlight energy is stored. But, of course, that's just making sugars, simple sugars, slightly more complex, really complex. But your plan, in order to be able to grow, uh, requires the nitrogen and the phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc. You know, I roll my eyes and the whatever number of nutrients that your plant requires. Mm-hmm. And pretty much every plant requires more or less the same amount of any nutrient. Some slightly um, higher in one or another for a period of time, but in general, plants all need just about the same things. So where is your plant going to get that? Well, you're going to have to send these sugars down to the root system where the plant can take up the proper forms of those nutrients. And plants don't take up every form of nitrogen or phosphorus, etc. They can only take up the soluble inorganic nutrients, maybe, and there's some research being done that maybe they can take up organic nutrients as well, but it's pretty iffy, not really well accepted. Um, More work needs to be done. So, okay, we've got to make certain the right forms of these nutrients are being made available to your plants. And of course, where we have tilled the fields and they may be tilling those fields up to 14 times in the growing season Hmm. to knock back the weeds. But every time you till, you're slicing and dicing and crushing and destroying the fungi, the protozoa, the nematodes, all of those organisms that your plant has to have in order to have normal nutrient cycling going on in its root system. So we're leaving that soil Um, with lots of crushed bodies, but the bacteria can survive because the bacteria are small and they can be protected in the cracks and crevices of the sands and the silts and the clays and um, some of the rocks and pebbles in some of the organic matter. So we're forcing that soil to become strictly bacterial. And that's why we notice those kinds of problems Hmm. of having to put on more inorganic nutrients Every year, it's got to be a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until all of a sudden you realize we used to only put on half a pound. Now we're putting on 20 pounds. And then a little bit later, we're putting on um, 10 times that. And we keep being told that we have to be putting on 400 pounds per acre uh, nitrogen. 
when you think about the amount of nitrogen that's transported off of a, of a growing of a field of, um, of vegetables or corn or wheat or barley, and you realize that those plants only have something like 20 to 40 pounds of nitrogen in that whole crop, why are we putting on 400 pounds per acre of the inorganic fertilizer? Because most of that fertilizer is being washed through the soil. There's nothing to hold it, nothing to keep it in the, well, it's not really soil, is it? We've destroyed the organic matter for the most part with this constant tillage, pounding on all of this salt that absolutely kills any beneficial organisms that are down there. We're turning that soil into dirt, and you can't hold nutrients in dirt. There's no mechanism for that to happen. So we're forced to put on these inorganic fertilizers and we are happily leaching all of those nutrients out of the dirt and into our groundwater, into our drinking water. Why do we think we have so many problems with lakes and rivers and streams and the oceans are dying and the coral reefs are being destroyed and folks just try to breathe if we don't have all of these um, organisms that are supposed to be putting oxygen back into the atmosphere for us to breathe. It's a cycle. <laughs> oxygen is not a forever product. When this planet first started being formed and life started on this planet, it was all anaerobic organisms because the percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere was extremely low. Um, I think it was down around 2% if uh, my memory serves. And it is only because the anaerobic or bacteria, photosynthetic bacteria, growing on the surface of the planet pumped so much oxygen into the atmosphere through the process of photosynthesis that it changed the atmosphere of this planet to 25% uh, oxygen. Hmm. So did we all depend on microorganisms? Yeah. We wouldn't have had even a chance to occur on this planet without bacteria performing that job for us. So we have to keep these creatures alive. We need them present and functioning in our soils so that uh, our plants will grow. But if, we, if you follow the Green Revolution, and really it's not the Green Revolution so much that is the original problem. The original problem is that we invented the mechanical tractor. And that allowed a single person to start farming larger and larger acreages and not paying any attention to what was going on with their soil, that it was turning into dirt. So you start tilling, what's going to happen is you're going to slice and dice all of those organisms that will prevent weeds from being able to grow in your soil. There's a couple of papers just out of uh, Japan where I, I like to think that I was at least part of the reason that they started asking these questions about what is the effect of nitrate on plants versus what's the effect of ammonium? Do they play different roles? These are both soluble, inorganic forms of nitrogen. And yet when you have strictly nitrate in your soil, you are setting the stage for just weeds. Hmm. When you're getting ammonium into the soil, that starts to shut down the weed's ability to germinate or grow 
and they're going to be outcompeted by the next stage in succession. So get your veggies in there, get your um, early successional grasses, get all those forbs and herbs growing in your soil because now you've got enough NH4, ammonium, in the soil that these plants are going to outcompete the weeds that you don't want. But the second you go out and you till, you just sliced and diced all the fungi that were the, the, the reason why we have the consequence of NH4 starting to appear. Soil bacteria, aerobic soil bacteria, produce alkaline glue layers around their bodies, and they are going to push the soil alkaline, which allows the nitrifying bacteria to grow. And so all of your nitrogen appears as NO3. You start getting fungi growing, they put out organic acids. And so NH4 is going to slowly but surely through succession become predominant. By the time we get to old growth forest, the only form of nitrogen that you will find is NH4. And it is toxic. It's deadly to those old growth forest species to have nitrates anywhere around the root system. So that plant is putting out exudates to make certain that only those microorganisms that it needs, that it wants, that will do the jobs your plant wants, are indeed the ones that are present in the soil. Your plant is growing its own garden of microflora hmm. to benefit itself. And we have to recognize that if we want to have healthy plants, that every second of every day, they're getting the nutrients cycled right there at the root surface. It's getting absolutely everything it needs. It will never be sick. It will not succumb to diseases or pests because it's got all the nutrition it requires. If you as a human being are thinking about this, do you want to be eating um, food, a vegetable, plant material that doesn't have all the nutrition in it? How's that going to taste? How much benefit is that going to have to your body? And the, the many ways in which all of these things are connected is just phenomenal. How one thing leads to the other, leads to the other, leads to the other. And it's all connected to not only our physical health, but the health of our plants, the health of our soil, the health of our animals, and so on. That we we are a big part of this system, and like it's fascinating to me. And you started the conversation with this that biology drives, you know, what the next succession is going to be. And if you go one way or the other, it will tell you a different direction. So if you make it too alkaline, it'll go this way. If you make it too acidic, it'll go this way. And this to me is just really mind-blowing, but it also explains so much about problems or what we view as problems, and they're not really problems, they're just different directions of how we are pointing the ecosystem's health to go. And when you think about it that way, and then you change the base biology in order to get back in the direction you want to go in, you just open up your whole mindset on how you view it and that different mindset allows you to problem solve differently, which is what you've just demonstrated. Yep. Getting understanding what biology is present in your soil versus what does the plant you want to grow? What does it need? Right. And so we've got to 
put in additional organisms or we've got to put in different predators that will reduce those the biomass of you know, the bacteria so they're they're not too high and growing weeds. Um, they're down low, balanced with the fungi. Mm-hmm. And so what is that balance of that fungal to bacterial biomass ratio as we go through succession? If we want to go out there and we want to start growing blueberries, we better work on getting that soil so that it has five times more fungal biomass, good guys. So that means the soil has to be, have plenty of air passageways and hallways to allow oxygen and water and your roots to grow as deep as those blueberry roots ought to go. Blueberry roots can put their roots down 25, 30, 35 feet. Wow. And they're happy then. They've got all the nutrition that they want. Compact that soil by tilling, and all of a sudden you restrict the the root systems of your plants into the top six inches of the soil. And when you think about this is a plant that needs to be putting its roots down 25 feet and what you've forced it to grow in the top six inches, that is not going to be a healthy, happy plant. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dr. Elaine Ingham is a soil scientist, microbiologist, ecologist, and founder of the Soil Food Web, Inc., based in Corvallis, Oregon. We'll be back for more with Elaine on the beauty of living soil after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's me again, thinking out loud this week, recording from a strange place in a faraway location. Another thing that was not canceled, even though it was adjusted and adapted to in this ever-shifting moment we find ourselves, was my conversation with the writer and gardener Jamaica Kincaid at the New York Botanical Garden on Friday the 13th. While the hundreds of you who had registered to attend that day were not able to be there in person with us, the New York Botanical Garden, in innovative and creative thinking, they found another way. Under the resourceful leadership of an amazing crew of women, including President Dr. Carrie Rabora Barat, Vice President for Continuing and Public Education Barbara Corcoran, and Director of Adult Education Lisa Whitmer, the New York Botanical Garden pivoted on a dime and rounded up videographer Kate and others to record and tape me and Jamaica in conversation under sweeping curves of orchids in the Orchid Show, talking about the earth in her hands, and the role of horticulture and gardening in our time and historically. As I wrote in The Earth in Her Hands, women have been the carriers and sowers of seeds and the tenders of seedlings for a very, very long time. Although for a great deal of that time, these same women did not have the time or the means and ways necessary to document that history fully, if at all. There is no telling the whole story of women making their lives with plants or women making the lives of plants a broader field. 
I can't even superficially acknowledge all of the women in plants who've cultivated this territory before us, except insofar as the compost-rich soil they've left behind in a diversity of ways is what germinated the seeds that became these vibrant women I'm writing about and talking with today. Likewise, I can't tell the whole story of women in plants today. I can tell a partial story for a few of these women and hope that together, interwoven, they prismatically reflect the broader story of women growing this world through their work with and in plants. Here's just one example of how this conversation helps to shed light where it might not have been so bright previously. To each woman I interviewed for the book, I asked the same set of questions. Among these questions was one asking for women who had inspired or informed the women I was speaking with in their own way of growing and gardening. Jamaica Kincaid offered out the somewhat surprising name of Sacagawea, the indigenous woman who led Lewis and Clark in their Western collecting expedition sponsored by Thomas Jefferson. While Lewis and Clark and Jefferson were the ones to claim credit for the many plant discoveries and introductions precipitated by the Lewis and Clark expedition, it would have been Sacagawea's knowledge, guidance, and intuition upon which all of these discoveries and introductions, so-called, relied. And yet, Sacagawea got very little to no credit or benefit to speak of. Jamaica Kincaid's sighting of Sacagawea was one of my favorite responses to this question. While on tour talking about Jamaica Kincaid's work and her choosing Sacagawea as a woman of inspiration the world should know more about, Another wonderful world in plants, Marianne Newcomer of Boise, Idaho, was delighted to share with me that an Idahoan botanist friend of hers, Edna Ray Vizgardes, working with another botanist, Wilson and others, had recently studied the Lewisias, also known as bitterroots of Idaho, which were previously considered to be part of the California species Lewisia kelloggii, named for both Lewis and another botanist, Kellogg. And Edna and her team determined them to in fact be different species. Edna was then given the honor of choosing the name for the newly identified and described Lewisia species, which she says, quote, was one of the highlights of my career, end quote. The name of this newly described species is now Lewisia Sacagawiana B. L. Wilson and E. Ray Visgerdes. While this is not perhaps a perfect next step in the naming of things, it is very much a good step in the right, bright direction. Thank you, as always, especially now, for listening. For your donations of support for this program, Cultivating Place That You Value, and for being in this green, growing, supportive community together. Together, we grow. 
keep gardening. Now, back to our conversation with Elaine Ingham, whose work in the soil and articulating the soil food web is foundational to greater understanding for us all. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Elaine Ingham's work in soil science helps to illuminate the incredible beauty and complexity of the life in the soil being integral to plant diversity and health. We're back now with Elaine to hear more. When you are right now in your uh, research, what are you focusing on primarily currently? We're really looking at how do we protect the soil surface from one of the most damaging things that happen to soil other than tillage, other than a plow going through and compacting the soil, slicing, dicing, and crushing all, almost all of the beneficial organisms. We, don't, we want to prevent rainfall from impacting right on the surface of the soil. That is one of Mother Nature's most compacting factors. And so we don't want that happening on our agricultural soils. So how do you intercept big, heavy raindrops, especially when you have, I always think of it as monsoonal rainfalls, and and we're seeing more and more of that, really big drops impacting the soil and causing compaction at four to six inches. How do we prevent that energy from being transferred and compacting your soil and now causing all these erosion problems and causing anaerobic conditions to occur, anaerobic conditions blowing off most of your nutrients um, as gases. Um, And good luck growing your plants without those nutrients in your soil. Mm -hmm. And the simple answer is you put in a cover plant. I'm not talking cover crops because the agricultural people have done the exactly, you know, 180 degree wrong choice was made when we talk about cover crops. You have to go out and buy the seed every fall. You've got to go out there on your tractors and you've got to seed that in. So what are you doing before you seed it in? (laughs) Often you're out there tilling. So after you've planted in the fall, you're going to get the seed in the soil. Perhaps it germinates in the springtime or germinates in the fall. And uh, you have a huge above ground biomass Mm -hmm. of that cover crop. And that's what all those seeds have been selected for, is to give you massive amounts of above ground biomass. Is that where we need that biomass? Why are we growing cover crops? It's to feed the biology in your soil, except your organic matter is above ground. How are you gonna get it into the soil? You have a really good bumper year of cover crop and you lay that down and it's six inches, eight inches deep you're going to go anaerobic and you're going to be blowing off the exact nutrients that you mean to keep in your system. Um, You're growing all the disease-causing organisms because it's the bad guys that grow in the reduced oxygen conditions. The good guys have to have oxygen. Your root systems are obligate aerobes. And so too thick a layer, what if you don't have enough cover crop being produced? Okay, then you have rainfall smashing into the surface of your soil. That's, you know, how, most people, how do they put that cover crop material back into the soil? They till it. Yeah. Ouch. We're going one step forward and three steps back. So we got to stop that practice 
Let's put in short, low-growing cover plants where we get those root systems growing deep into the soil. Let's make sure it's a root system that needs the same balance of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes as your crop plant needs. Let's make sure that the cover plant requires the same mycorrhizal fungi as your crop plant requires. And then the second you put your seed into the ground, those mycorrhizal fungi are right over there saying, hi, hey, we've brought some food for you. This is the neighborhood casserole party. <laughs> <laughs> so give us some examples of those of those interrelated plants that are going to set up like that. And it, it's reminding me of the matrix planting concept in ecological gardening just now. It, it's a similar feel. Is Am I right in that? Yeah. Okay. It's exactly that, that sort of attitude about it. They don't understand necessarily why it is so good to put in these cover plants and have complete ground cover is another name for them. It's just that we want to have mixtures, really um, massive amount, you know, 15 to 20 different species of cover plant or ground cover growing. And you, you don't do it just on top of the beds. You do it down the sides of the beds. You do it in the driving row. So you're going to drive on top of these guys. Um, most of them don't care. You're not going to hurt them as you, long as you keep the number of trips down to a reasonable minimum. They're just going to come back, so you're going to keep them a little shorter in the driving row as compared to on top of the beds. But you don't want them to be any taller than maybe uh, two, three inches. And then they're going to provide that buffer of any drop of water is going to hit their leaves. It's going to hit their stems. It doesn't hit your soil. And so you don't get that hard concrete-like baked surface that everybody has in the late summer when it gets really hot and dry. Good luck watering. Why would you water when you've got a compaction layer on the surface of your soil that your water can't get through? Right. We need to keep that so water can infiltrate all year round. So give us an example of cover plants um, that you would recommend. I, I think you work as a consultant with some agricultural and, and larger land owners. Give us an example of someone coming to you and saying, I'm having this problem. I, have, I grow these things. What should I do? And you recommend a cover plant of XYZ. Yeah. So we want to look local. Um, we don't want to be bringing plants that can turn into weeds right. in your habitat. And, you know, one, no one's ever brought them before. So who knew? So we're looking, typically we're going to say to people, go to your native plant society and look at their different categories. Look for the categories of low growing flowering species, because then they're going to see themselves in and you won't ever have to buy seed again. You can actually probably package some of your own seed and sell it to other people. So um, low-growing. So things like isotoma, dichondra, the, the temperate dichondra, don't get the tropical dichondra. Mm -hmm. uh, creeping thyme, creeping lavender, you know, especially the more woody cover plants mm -hmm. when you're trying to grow uh, blueberry or you've got an orchard because then you're matching the mycorrhizal fungi on the root systems of those woody kinds of plants with those a uh, little bit woody herbs and you know creeping thyme and creeping lavender. Mm -hmm. um, if you're growing you know potatoes and tomatoes and things like that, 
um, you want the really low-growing herbs, very prostrate, protecting that soil surface from rain, however. So we have on our website, so if you go look at soilfoodweb.com, mm-hmm. we have a list of um, a whole set of appropriate to the United States, pretty much, low-growing short plant species. Trial them in your own area, and that's why going to the Native Plant Society right. is so useful. They'll tell you what's indigenous. They'll, they'll tell you what they're already growing and works. So you're not putting in something, you know, because people think of ground cover and they always say, oh, clover. Don't right. do that. You would like to be able to find your beets before, <laughs> yeah, so you can eat them or carrots or the clover is just so aggressive. And we've tried some of the, uh, oh, these aren't aggressive. No, they are too. When you've got good biology in the soil and they just get so happy and they grow over, you know, you, you leave on a Friday afternoon from the farm, you're going to go off for the, to enjoy yourself for the next two days. Um, and you've got a nice six inch wide strip around all your carrots and your lettuce and your potato, you know, all the little sprouts that have started to come up and you get back on Monday morning and you go, didn't we plant something in this row? <laughs> it's all completely clover. You go in and you start trying to pull the clover apart and it's you realize that you just ripped up your start because you didn't see it. So be careful on that one. That's probably the only ground cover that I would not recommend to trial because we've not been nothing but disappointed mm-hmm. um, with those. So it's a, a little bit of a you got to do a little bit of work yourself to figure out what's going to be best for your garden Right. And the plants that you're growing. Gotcha. But you never have to mow again. Yeah, which is, there's a pretty strong incentive there. Not buying seed, not adding other inputs, keeping your soil from being compacted, and um, not having to mow. Those are all great incentives to do this legwork. And, you know, the minute you said this about go to your native plant society and ask them about, you know, what are your low-growing grasses? What are your low-growing forbs? What what works in this biology here? And, of course, with microclimates, you know, it, it can vary so dramatically in any given area from high to low, riparian to, you know, the Tuscan formation here at the top of our uh, bluffs. It's all very different, but the local people know and um, the local plants know. So yep. that paying attention and listening to your own locale, I think, is is just a key takeaway for, for me in this conversation. The... We're coming very close to our end, and I'd really like to get to what are your hopes for the wider impacts of this work, and especially in the context of, you know, what would you say to other home gardeners or nature lovers as to the power and agency of this kind of evidence-based, engaged, questioning, curious relationship with our plants and our places, Elaine? It certainly makes growing your garden a lot more fun. Um, And it's something that we have to do. We need everybody growing their food using the proper biology. So it's protecting you. you, You don't end up going to the doctor. You don't have the constant antibiotic 
pouring down your kids' throat because they're not getting the proper nutrition that they require. So we have to go this direction. We can grow plants without pesticides or inorganic fertilizers, and you get a much better flavor and a much more nutritious meal when you grow plants this way. Mm-hmm. So that's really my hope is that we continue to spread this knowledge around the planet. And, you know, I try as much as possible to just, just give the information to people so that they can start going down this path. Wow. And if everybody everywhere within the next year or two started to follow this pathway, making their own compost, applying it to the soil, you don't have to use the pesticides, inorganic fertilizers, you don't have the weed problems, you don't have water problems because you're storing your own water in your own soil. So we could put back into the soil all of the elevated CO2 within a very short period of time. We could beat climate change in that short a period of time. Wow. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been inspirational, as I knew it would be. Thank you. To be in conversation with you. Thank you for your time and your work, Elaine. Well, thank you so much for giving me a forum to talk to people and spread the message. We have to have this message go out all over the planet. Dr. Elaine Ingham is a soil scientist, microbiologist, ecologist, and founder of the Soil Food Web, Inc. She is one of the 75 women in the earth in her hands, out now from Timber Press and available everywhere books are sold. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. The earth is in all of our hands, so take good care. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out the photos and more about Dr. Elaine Ingham's work in soil science. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.